Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Like I said, we'll be in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8. And there's uh, 66 verses in this chapter, so for a preacher who often spends uh, about uh, one verse per time, we're going pretty fastly uh, fast through this. But uh, here we are again in, in 1 Kings chapter 8. And what uh, we see is really uh, three main characters. I don't like using that term in the, you know, it, it seems that it's a, it's a made-up story, but I mean in the sense that this is a narrative that has been recorded. And uh, so you have Solomon, the, the people, the assembled uh, people. You have God, the ark, and the temple. Um, and then you have uh, maybe the priest, maybe David is another one that is off in the, the shadows. But really what we see in this, this chapter is it's laid out in a very simple outline which you can kind of see in the movement of the people and the movement of Solomon. Um, really, that's the outline. It begins with the people assembling together in uh, verse 1. They assemble together for a feast. You see that in verse 2. They then make sacrifices together, Solomon and all the congregation in, in verse 5, who assembled before him were uh, before the ark, sacrificing uh, so many sheep and oxen. The glory cloud comes down, verses uh, 10 and 11. The priests are unable to stand in the temple. Um, And then Solomon turns around from uh, the temple and then now looks at the people. He blesses the people in verse 14. Uh, But what is central to all of this, and as we'll see, is, is this prayer that's in the middle of all of this. And what we see is that it's building up to this time. The people gather. There's a feast. Solomon blesses um, the people. He has this prayer in verse 22. He stands in the presence of the people uh, in verse 22. And all the assembly spread his hands towards uh, heaven. He ends in verse 54. He's finished his prayer and his plea. But... He is with his, he's kneeling with his hands outstretched towards heaven. So here are the long section of what this passage is really about, what the author spends a lot of time about, but what also the structure points out is this all leading up to this. Because after the people assemble, there's a feast. Solomon blesses the people. Uh, Solomon prays. And then we go backwards from there as well. Solomon blesses the people in verse 55. There are sacrifices in verse 62. There's a feast in verse 62, um, 65. And then the people are sent away in verse 66. So it's, it's all building up. The people gather, a feast, sacrifice, blessing, prayer, and backwards. Blessing, um, sacrifice, feast, people um, then spend, turn around. So we're going to spend a couple of weeks on this prayer because it's very important. Almost half of this passage is centered around the prayer. So not merely just do we see it in the structure emphasizing this, but also in the content and the amount of time. So let's uh, look at this together. And we'll ask firstly a question. Where did you learn how to pray? You might be able to answer the other questions. Who taught you to cook? Who taught you to brush your teeth? To read? To do mathematic equations, but often we might not know of anyone who has truly taught us to pray, to sit down and say, this, this is how we are to pray. We know people 
uh, maybe we have learned how to pray from others praying before us, and we've had that great example from them. Maybe we've seen them, heard them, and said, oh, I want to pray more like that, and we've, we've grown over time. But where do we learn how to pray? The Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, Shorter Catechism, asks that question in, in question 99. It says, what rule hath God given for our direction in prayer? What rule has God given? Is there any guide that God has given us on how we are to pray? And the answers begins by saying the whole word of God is, to be, is of use to direct us in prayer. But the special rule of direction, that come, that form of prayer, which Christ taught his disciples, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. So the, the catechism gives us two answers. There's where do we learn how to pray? What rule has God given us to pray? It begins and says the whole Bible, the whole Word of God is to be able to direct us in prayer. But specifically, we're to learn how to pray through the Lord's Prayer. And that's exactly what the Catechism then breaks down to do. But the whole Word of God is able to be able to teach us to prayer. The the disciples came up and the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray. Um, Just as John taught his disciples so here they see that, um, that uh, John taught his disciples how to pray, and they obviously see something in Jesus about how to pray, and they, they say, teach us to pray. So we don't merely just turn to the Lord's Prayer. There is a great place to be able to start, but we can turn to the whole Bible to teach us to pray, and there's many prayers in the Bible that are helpful to be able to help us shift and change how we pray and that we learn how to pray. We, so tonight, we see Solomon, and Solomon teaches us how to pray. The wisest person on the earth at the time, he prays to the Lord, and what does he pray? So we can learn how to pray from him. Uh, so what do we learn from this prayer? The first thing is we see Solomon's praise in verse 23 to 24. O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you. In heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke from your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. And Solomon begins his prayer by praising God. This is exactly what the Lord's Prayer does as well. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So Solomon begins and he praises God for who he is, but also what he has done. He praises him for his name. He says, O Lord God uh, of Israel, his prayer is based on God's relationship with his people. He prays to a known God, the known God, the known living true God, not to some unknown God, and hoping that his prayer is heard, hoping his prayer sticks, but the God who has revealed himself to his people. This is how the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines prayer in uh, 98. It says, prayer is offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will. In the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. That prayer is directed unto God. 
we direct our prayers to God. We're not filing our prayers upward, hoping that someone or something will hear us, and by chance that, uh, that someone, one of them might be answered. It's not like going on hold and hoping that someone will finally pick up and someone who will pick up that will uh, know what they're talking about and be able to answer your one simple question that you think should be simple on the phone. We go before God. And our prayers go before this great and glorious God who has revealed himself in the scriptures. That's exactly how we begin the Lord's Prayer. We pray our Father. Just as a letter has a recipient, and so do our prayers. Our prayers are not like the letters that you choose that are hopefully often just junk. Current resident. Obviously, it's not that important if they don't write your own name. But here we pray to God, not only we pray to his name. But the next portion that Solomon praises God for is who he is and what he has done. He then says about his uniqueness, his name and then his uniqueness. Not only do we pray towards a specific God, he says there is none like you. We pray to the one true living God. And, but Solomon, again, doesn't just make this prayer up for a vacuum. Does Solomon learned how to pray somewhere. Well, where did Solomon learn how to pray? Well, he learned to pray from the scriptures. He is praying what the people have already prayed. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, Who is like you as they sang their song? O Lord among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? This is what his father prayed after God makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 22. David prayed and he said, Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears. The Solomon shows that God is the one true living God over all of creation. He says you you could go try looking for another God, but you would never find a God like the God that he is praying to, the one who is above heaven and earth. His name, his uniqueness, And then his character. He praises God for his character. You see this? He prayed about God's covenant-keeping faithfulness. Again, we look to uh, other portions of Scripture. For you are people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all peoples who are on the face of the earth... It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. From the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, 
and keep his commandment to the thousand generations. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but the nature of the people of God is that maybe they could count on their hands how many times this nation truly turned and worshipped God and God alone. They chase other false idols, false gods, worshiping golden calves, Baals, Dagons, other false gods. And yet, God remains true to what he has said. Not even a small variance or change. He has been faithful when the people of God have been unfaithful. Even when the people have not kept their promise, God has kept his But Moses in Deuteronomy points out that God chose them not because of who they are, not because they were great in number or what they had done, but because he loved them, not because they loved him. He loved them. He is keeping his word because he has made his word because he loves them. Not because they're great, not because they good, do good deeds. He is the one that does all these things. And here is the basis of that promise that carries through throughout all of the scripture. In Numbers 23, it says that God is not man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken? And will he not fulfill it? Lamentation says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. To the servants who walk in his ways. What in his ways? Well, that means faith. To walk in faith leads to work, not that works begins. Solomon praises God for his work in fulfilling his promise. Solomon thought at some level that this was the start of something. This is the part where God is fulfilling his promise to David, his father. Again, we don't know to the extent of what that looks like in Solomon's mind. But he says in verse 24 that you have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand they fulfilled it this day. Here he understands that this is the blessing that he passed on to the people just moments before. In verse 15, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hands has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father, saying. He begins his prayer by praising the Lord. His name, his character, his works, his faithfulness, how he's fulfilled it. And then he praises him for his works. And the next bit he prays is a prayer of thanksgiving. In verse 25, Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David my father what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before him, me, as you 
have walked before me. Previously, we saw that God was keeping, and now this verse says that he is he kept. And the next verse says to keep. That here he goes thanks with thanksgiving in his heart, thanking God for his faithfulness in fulfilling the promise. Not merely that he will fulfill it, but he has fulfilled it. That we are to go before the Lord with all thanksgiving, as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We're in Colossians chapter 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. First Chronicles chapter 16. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I mean, you could keep on going, but, but a part of prayer is, is giving thanks unto God, praising who He is, but thanking God for every single spiritual blessing He has blessed us with through Christ. And we need to be reminded of this because Solomon has reminded us that this great high, David's promise is looking for an obedient son, one that will not sit on David's throne for some time, but the promise linked to obedience. But not obedience like the son of Adam, for that is impossible for this, but, but for that son of Adam, but for the son of God, the seed of the woman who will come, he will be able to be obedient. So we see Solomon praising God in his prayer, thinking about who he is, what he has done, his faithfulness. We tell our kids every night when we pray, think of one thing, one thing to thank God for. Now, sometimes that's hard for them, but then we start giving them ideas and suggestions, and the list does not take long to be able to think of these things. That a part of prayer is, is thinking about who God is, who we are praying to, to think about His attributes, His character, and praying to Him and giving thanks to God for Him. Often we think we go and, you know, our prayers are more focused on please rather than thank you. Please, can you do this? Please, can you do this? Please, can you do this? But our prayers should be directed to God with thanksgiving in our heart. Thanking God for what He has given us. Who He is. His faithfulness. The next part is Solomon's praise, and then the next part is Solomon's petition. In verse 26. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. What is Solomon asking for in this prayer? He's petitioning God that his promise would come true that David's son would sit on the throne forever. 
a prayer that is important to be able to pray. Lord, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. The word confirmed speaks and relates to faith is the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. And Abraham faithed. Here he speaks of been established, trustworthy, secure, verified. Solomon prays knowing it's up to the line of kings to be obedient to God, and yet he prays that God would establish his promise through faith. There's that famous promise that he speaks of in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The promise that the kingdom would come from David's offspring, be established by God, built by the offspring, be eternal, be led by David, uh, God's son, David's offspring. No. To the extent that Solomon understands this, it's hard to be able to grasp and put our heads around. But all of these are fulfilled in Christ. And Solomon prays, let it be so. Let your word be confirmed. Let you fulfill your promise. That Christ is the offspring of David. That Christ was sent to establish God's kingdom. That Christ would build his house. Christ reigns for eternity. Christ is God's son. And here, this is how Solomon begins his prayer as he begins this amazing prayer that he prays. Now, what has he prayed for? Up to this point, this prayer is probably very different from how we often pray. He's focused on who God is, giving thanks to Him, His character, His work, His name. He's prayed that God's Word would be established and carried out and fulfilled. Now, he does pray specific things, which we'll spend a little bit of time on this evening. His plea, as we call it. But here, what a good foundation it is for us to be able to learn how to pray. If we're ever stuck to learn how to pray, it's often quite easy just even just to turn to any psalm in the Bible and to be able to see how we might be able to pray to be able to thank God for who he is, what he has done. I mean, even if we were to turn to Psalm 148, a psalm that we sing here. Again, praise the Lord, praise from the heavens. Praise him in the heights, praise him all his angels, praise him all his hosts. Again, what is the focus of this? It's God, who he is, his name. giving thanks and praise for what he has done. Things that he has created. Things that worship him. Things he has established. His decrees that shall not pass away. Again, his word that will never return void. Creation, people. His name is exalted in verse 13. His name alone is exalted, his majesty above the earth and heaven. That he will raise up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. To be able to go through here and thank God for everything that he has done. 
That's just one psalm. And you could go expand that even further to turn to all scripture. To thank God for the promises, his name, his wonders, his works. What a great thing that is to be able to grow and learn in how we pray. But the next section is what we're going to call Solomon's plea. Now, we're, we're going to begin looking at this section here more as an outline, and then next uh, week we'll go more in detail into this to help us understand a little bit of Solomon's prayer. But let's look at verses 27 to 30, and then we'll uh, have a look. But here, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place which you have said, My name shall be there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers, offers towards this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and, to your, and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. And listen in heaven your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. Here begins the pattern which we see uh, seven times after verse 31. He is, uh, here's his dedication is this plea, this prayer, this cry to the Lord who dwells in this house. Now Solomon points out at the very beginning that, that this house or this place is not that special. But this place is, is a little bit special because it's connected to God. We'll speak more of this later. But here Solomon points out that how can God be contained in this small little house? The Holy of Holies in the, in the very middle is 20 cubits, 20 cubits, 20 cubits. And Solomon points out God cannot dwell in that space, specifically. The heavens can't even contain you. How do you think he's going to be squeezed into a box? How can God fit here? This is what they read about in Acts chapter 7. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? How, is, how are we going to make a place for God to dwell when creation can't even hold God? But Solomon reminds us about what this temple is about. He says, firstly, about God's name, his covenant. He uses it three times here, Yahweh, God of Israel. His name, the second thing is God's house. God's house is a house of prayer. This is exactly Jesus' statement when he's driving the moneylenders out of the temple. But here, this house, as Solomon is praying with his arms lifted and the people if they had their eyes open or the last thing they saw before they closed them, was they saw this magnificent structure with a dark cloud encapsulating it. 
But he says that your eyes would be towards this house. And the list of prayers focuses on the people then directing their prayers to this house. This house, which is going to be a symbol of prayer. So the the beginning starts with God's name, then God's house, the people looking towards their house. The third part is God listens. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 29, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. And then in verse 30, and listen to the plea of your servant, that your people Israel, when they pray towards this place, and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, when you hear. And he says, forgive. But here, this is is somewhat of a channel. God still dwells in heaven, because heaven and earth cannot contain God. But as the people look towards this house and pray to this house, that then it might go to God in his throne room. Now again, let's try and think about this. How do we pray? We end our prayers with, in Jesus' name, amen, or amen. The kids always correct me. But we, we pray in Jesus' name. It's not something that just gives people a warning. All right, here's our cue. We're all going to say amen soon. You know, how, what's some way that we can know that we're about to finish a prayer? Well, let's just say in Jesus' name. We pray... In Jesus' name, to God. And here we can see even a shadow of the gospel is that Jesus says that he is the temple. And we pray through Jesus to get to the Father. Jesus is the mediator. And here, in the shadow in the Old Testament, they pray to the the temple, looking at the temple to get to heaven for the Lord to be able to hear our prayer. And we see that shadow. Here, that Christ is that temple in whom we pray, directing towards. But the last thing that we see in this section is God forgives. Here in this house, the idea of this temple is not that people will be perfect. As we think about God's faithfulness and what he has done, but actually rooted in this idea is that people will sin. Therefore, connected to the temple is sacrifices and atonement and offering. That here, God has made a way for God to come dwell on earth, but also the people to be able to approach God, to dwell with Him as well. That God has made a way for forgiveness. It's not just all about God's glory and God's holiness, but it's God's way for sinful people to come to Him. The Bible teaches about sin and folly. And it doesn't say that people out there are sinful and we are perfect. The Actually, the image is that we are all sinful and all fall short of the glory of God. The only way that we can enter into his courts with thanksgiving and praise is through forgiveness, true repentance. 
The Pharisees had a wrong understanding of what the Bible said. They just said, the Bible teaches us how not to sin. So if we don't sin, then therefore we don't need a doctor. We're not sick. They redefined what sin is. They neglected the weightier matters of law. They only made sin things that they weren't doing. The commandments which they followed through, they said, yes, we do those commandments, so let's just have that on our list. This is Paul's point in Romans chapter 4. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies uh, the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David who speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Again, it's not that we just don't sin. The, the message of the Old Testament is that we do sin and we need a way for God to be able to forgive us. And David says, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. And even this prayer reminds us that God forgives. Solomon then gives seven situations with the exact same formula. There is sin. They turn, repent, they pray to the house, they're heard by God, they're forgiven by God. Delroy Davis says this, but the conjunction, you must turn to the prayer of your servant and to his plea for grace. What an audacious assumption. The true God is as described in verse 27, but you can talk, with, talk to him with prayers. Please, for grace and Christ. Solomon teaches us that transcendence does not destroy intimacy. Transcendence does not destroy intimacy. Though it does give intimacy goosebumps. Yahweh is transcendent and available. This intimacy is an intimacy of the ear, of the eye. And that constantly, night and day, Here, God in all of his glory that drives the priests out. Solomon is here saying, let us pray to this God and ask for forgiveness. This house is not merely a place for God to dwell, but an invitation for us to come. This house is a house of forgiveness. As we think about what is going to happen in 1 and 2 Kings, this needs to be the reminder in our in the back of our minds. It's not about perfection. It's about repentance. Come to call, to look at this house. That here we see again the gospel message in a veil, with a veil and a shadow. That we are to come to Christ. To have this atonement. To have this forgiveness. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched. Weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you. Full of pity joined with power. Come ye needy, come and welcome. 
God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry, you, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Here, that this is the message that we see even in the Old Testament. This temple is an image of Christ, of how we go to God in prayer, but also how we can go to God and ask for forgiveness as well. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.